It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. This is your host, Stan Dryav, and my co-host, the Yari Rodriguez switch head kick to my Alexander Volkanovsky. Nick Bracha is actually not here today. He couldn't join me, so I decided to get an episode out for you all anyway. Now, the good news is that I we can actually continue our draft competition because we ended up doing our picks quickly over text, and I can kind of break down each of the individual fights for you all. It was my turn to pick first, and for my first pick, I chose Jack Della Maddalena to beat Josiah Harrell. Harrell is... Like, he's pretty small. He's got one of the smallest reaches at 170 pounds. Uh, belongs at 155, to be quite honest with you, but I know he's had issues making that weight in the past, and he's willing to take um, this on short notice, and that's really what allowed him to be here, right? He had a contender series bout coming up, and so he was cleared uh, 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 in Las Vegas for his physical, and so that really wasn't an issue. It was an easy put-in for the UFC. It only cost him about 10 or 12 grand to get him into this position, right, uh, to give Jack Della his fight, to give Jack Della his platform, and to allow this guy to take the loss, which in all likelihood is how this is going to happen. He's not super durable. He doesn't defend leg kicks. Uh, he he does train with Matt Brown, but he has a lot of heart, right? He can get he can get tagged up. Everything could be going against him. And then once he gets his opportunity opportunity to get top position or an exhausted opponent or something along those lines, he comes on hard and he can do pretty well because he's athletic. He can stay in the pocket. He can answer with a shot occasionally here and there. That's pretty effective, but he doesn't have the advanced striking game that he's facing here in Jack Della Bandelena. Jack Della is a much bigger man, 5'11 to 5'7, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So there's going to be a significant size discrepancy here. That preparation, the fact that he took this on short notice, you got to take Jack Della unless this kind of short notice shift in opponent messed him up. So that was my first pick between Nick and my draft competition, Nick's and my draft competition. Next, Nick took Bo Nicholas, his first pick to beat Val Woodburn. Again, these are the two biggest favorites on the card, and I think it's largely for good reason. I was a little bit less confident in Bo than I am in Jack Della in this matchup because Val Woodburn seems, you know, he's very athletic. He he has some power. He has an amateur record before his undefeated pro record. Took this on very short notice, though. We're talking about like three or four days. Uh, another guy that was scheduled for Contender Series. Another short notice, almost free fill-in for the UFC and giving Bo Nickel a platform because they're not trying to give Bo Nickel the kind of challenge that's realistically going to amount to a loss here. They're not trying to get his prospect loss out of the way when he's 4-0. And I think they gave him Val Woodburn with the intention of Val losing the fight. And Val, you know, for his credit, he sounds fairly confident. He's not talking about Bo Nickel like he's completely out of his league. Uh, again, 7-0 undefeated. And then he's got an amateur record of five and two prior to that. So again, a beatable guy. The last time he was beaten was in 2018, but that's the thing. is His pro debut was in 2020, and I know Bo Nickel's not very experienced, but is insane amount of experience uh, when it comes to the wrestling circuit, when it comes to high-level wrestling. You know, puts him in a pretty good position here. He's already competed in the UFC without the short notice shift. Uh, I know he had to, I mean, he didn't have to, but he ended up uh, hopefully accidentally landing a low blow before getting that takedown and finishing the fight shortly after against Jamie Pickett. I don't know that he needs that, but again, we haven't seen this guy hit hard. We haven't seen this guy go deep in a fight. There's so many questions still about Bo Nickel, despite the fact that he seems to be a pretty legit prospect, you know, at this very, very early stage of his career. So I was less confident in Bo Nickel than I was in Jack Della between these two matchups. Uh, Nick ended up picking Bo Nickel, and uh, and look, I mean, these odds are absolutely astronomical. I think Bo Nickel's something like a minus 2,500 
uh, favorite. Like, that's out of this world, man. Like, some of the best fighters in the world facing mid-level competition have not been this big a favorite. So it's a little bit silly, considering Val Woodburn is uh, is fairly athletic and seems to hit hard. Um, you know, I don't expect him to do well here, but he's he's got a shot, dude. Against a 4-0 bone ankle, he has got a shot. My next pick was Tatsura Tyra to beat Edgar Edgar Shires. And Shires is a decent grappler, but like that's kind of an issue if you're relying on your grappling against a guy like Tatsura Tyra. Tatsura, um, you know, Edgar, like for him to be a good grappler, he needs to be in top position. He's going to get taken down. He doesn't have the best wrestling. Tatsura is going to be able to do some things there. When it comes to the stand-up, he's pretty good, uh, Edgar is, you know, for this level, but... He's not high output enough to really threaten Tyra, who, you know, is heralded as a serious prospect. Tyra ended up uh, denying, uh, the, uh, the saying no, essentially, to a fight after his opponent missed weight a couple of weeks ago. That would have been a much, much more interesting matchup, uh, a lot more intriguing because, you know, he was fighting a fellow prospect in, or he was supposed to fight a fellow prospect in Clayton Rodriguez. Instead, here he gets Edgar Chavez, who's 10-4, and four, who's, you know, if you look at his recent record, right, he is actually... He is six and four in his last ten fights. I mean, that's not you know that doesn't make the recipe for for the kind of guy that's likely to beat an, uh, a very serious undefeated prospect who happens to be uh, a very very legitimate grappler. But we've seen some of these guys who keep getting switched off time and time again. We've seen some of these guys, Jumagulov being one of them, right? Like you keep getting postponed, your fight keeps getting postponed. It's gonna mess with your head. It's gonna mess with you. You might just lose to that UFC debuting guy. And Edgar Chavez presumably will be extremely hungry going into this bout. He's not you know he's not going in here with the intention of losing presumably. And he trains with the Entom Gym, which happens to be the best gym in Mexico and one of the you know one of the better gyms I would say in in uh, in that Central American North American region uh, maybe not in the maybe not in the top five but certainly in that top 12 15 range so you know it doesn't come from a bad team either I, I do like Tetsura here um, guys have basically the same the same number of fights Tetsura's already competed in the UFC a few times and he's 13 0 versus the 10 and 4 Edgar Chavez uh, Shires excuse me and uh, Nick's next pick which I think was the right pick was Cameron Simon, I actually think, like, Cameron Simon, something around, like, a minus 300, minus 350 favorite, depending on which book you look at, and this is a great deal, because Cameron Simon is a guy who trains, um, trains with Drake is Duplessis and, you know, South African team down there. And they do pretty good work, right? They're not the most technical fighters, but they've got relentless heart. They get exhausted and they keep pushing themselves 100%. That is something that is teachable to the right kind of guy. And that's not something that we see nearly enough. Uh, another guy that tends to do well when he gets really tired, and I mentioned this before, is uh, Rafael Faziev, right? He's the kind of guy who'll get exhausted, but he will keep pushing himself 100%. You can tell he's a little bit slower, but he's not diminishing, really. Same thing with Volkanovski. The guy can get tired here and there, but he just knows how to push himself to that next gear. And this is something that Simon is able to do. I don't know that he'll need to do it in this matchup, right? Simon, uh, not the most technical grappler. He can get take, uh, not the most technical striker, but he's pretty effective there. He's high output. He he swarms you. He can get taken down, but he tends to get back up pretty well. And then he's right back to work and putting it on you. And even though Terrence Mitchell has a 15-2 and two record, he came up on the Alaskan MMA circuit. And we're basically talking about quote-unquote prospects that get fed absolute jobbers that have no business fighting MMA, right? It's almost exclusively over tomato cans. He lost to Kaikara France in 30 seconds on The Ultimate Fighter seven years ago and has only had four fights since then. And his opponent's combined record was 15-6. and six. This guy's 15-2, and two, and the combined record of his last four opponents was 15 and 6. That we're talking about like a a 3 and 2, uh, a 1 and 0, oh, uh, a 3 and 0 oh kind of kind of opponent with this guy's level of experience. So again, he's been fed a bunch of cans and he's facing, you know, Cameron Simon who's who's far from a can in this matchup. Anybody can land a lucky shot, but I think 
Like, rather than going with Jock Della or uh, Bo Nickel in your parlays, I would probably slip Tatsura Tyra in there. I'd probably slip Cameron Samon in there because the prices are better, even though Tatsura Tyra is a monstrous, monstrous favorite uh, himself. Uh, it's not going to change your parlay much, but that Cameron Simon edition might just do exactly that. The next pick for me was in the Jalen Turner-Dan Hooker matchup. Now, you know, this is very much like a, a very serious, promising prospect, you know, on the verge of contendership, facing off against the guy who's been there in that contender role, who's been there challenging for, I think, the interim title, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and this is, look, this is an intriguing matchup. If Dan Hooker shows up, the Dan Hooker that can actually do damage against, you know, decent opposition, this can be exciting, right? The Dan the, the Dan Hooker that fought... Uh, Dustin Poirier back in 2020, but it's 2020, excuse me, but it has been three years since then, and the guy has not looked the same. He got smoked by Michael Chandler. He did beat Nazrat Hakpras and Claudio Poelis, um, and in between those two, he lost to Islam Makhachev, which is understandable, and Arnold Allen, but he's getting kind of blown out of the water by the likes of Chandler, by the likes of Arnold Allen, by Islam Makhachev, completely smoked by these guys. Now, is Jalen Turner uh, quite on that level? I think he can be at least comparable to Michael Chandler, because you all no, I don't think much of Michael Chandler as far as like his how elite he is in the sport. Um, but Arnold Allen, uh, Arnold Allen, Jalen Turner's not far from that man, not at all. They're right in the same range, I would say, like that contender status. And Jalen Turner, Turner's a guy who had a couple of those prospect losses early in his UFC career to Vincente Luque on the come up, which is pretty understandable. To Matt Frivola, which is a little bit more concerning, but given where Matt Frivola, Frivola is now, it doesn't you know it hasn't aged absolutely terribly. He was pressured by Frivola, who's a much shorter guy. And he's shown the ability to overcome that. He's actually, his next few wins are over Joshua Kulabau, who's turned out as a really good, uh, really good fighter. Brock Weaver's not good. Uh, Uros Medic is okay. Jamie Malarkey, he got out of there, right? He beat Brad Riddell. And when I say beat them, we're talking about finishing these guys. He is running through mofos. And if you look at his UFC record, every one of his wins is a finish. The guy is, I mean, the guy is extremely dangerous standing. He's extremely tall for the weight division, uh, standing at five, uh, six, three, excuse me. Dan Hooker's used to being the taller guy. He's not going to be the taller guy in this matchup, standing only at uh, six foot tall, right? Which which I'm sure it's going to be a little bit of a trip up for him. This is a guy that's fought at 145 after all. And we're talking about him facing a huge 155er in Jalen Turner here. So Dan Hooker's not going to have that advantage. Yes, he's got he's got more overall experience, but he's got, he's weathered, right? He's taken a lot of damage. He doesn't have the same will he used to. He's not as durable as he used to be. And even though Jalen Turner, I still have questions about his chin. You know, his last fight being a loss, I get it, to Mateusz Gamrat. It was a split decision. It should have gone Jalen Turner's way. He simply did more damage. In this new standard of mixed martial arts, uh, just wrestling your opponent and controlling from top position versus taking damage, it, it it doesn't equate the same way as it used to back when Johnny Hendricks came up and, and would hold down Carlos Condit and not do very much from there, even though Carlos landed some big shots from his back and from uh, you know standing position. We know that now judges tend to favor damage over control and I know that's not always the case but the majority of the time it seems to be the case and and you got to go you know you you got to go with Jalen Turner in that matchup against Mateusz Gamrat in that case in which case we're talking about him being on a six fight win streak in the UFC against pretty you know pretty decent competition again Brandon Riddell Jamie Malarkey's not bad I know he's coming off of a loss since then but I think maybe um I think maybe Jalen Turner may have ruined him a little bit when it comes to his chin and that sort of thing Brad Riddell uh, is a is a damn good opponent to be Mateusz Gamrat to be extremely competitive with him and arguably beat him as a great sign and Dan Hooker's on the on the on the way down and this is the kind of opponent he loses to so I chose Dan Hooker as that next uh pick for me and next for Nick who was probably pretty disappointed he was hoping he would get Turner uh for that pick uh he picked Whit- Whitaker next over 
over uh, uh, Drekas Duplessis, who, look, Drekas Duplessis, he almost never looks good in the first round against decent opposition, right? Because he relies on people getting tired, on people kind of drowning in the storm that he creates. He's, I mean, making it a dogfight is the perfect term for him, right? Because he's not the most technical. He is not necessarily the fastest. He's got serious firepower. He's got insane will. And he's pretty damn conditioned. He's the kind of guy that, again, gets exhausted and keeps fighting through it. They're talking about the reason why he looks like he's getting exhausted is because, uh, at least looked like he's getting exhausted, is because he had a very seriously deviated septum where he was only only able to breathe very, very minutely through one of the two nostrils, which I have the same kind of issue. Uh, you know, they're making this whole storyline about how now that his nose is fixed and his breathing's better, he's going to be untouchable. But after breaking your nose, and I believe they have to break it in order to fix a deviated septum in many cases, particularly one as badly broken as his, I would imagine. Um, you know, you get tagged in that nose again, man. Robert Whitaker is going to throw jabs. He's going to throw many, many jabs. Now, Look, is it possible that Robert Whitaker can get caught with one of Drakus' serious power shots? Yeah, it's possible. Robert Whitaker's got caught by, you know, by competition that's not exactly elite. He, you know, he, he got buzzed by Darren Till. He got buzzed by Jared Cannonier late uh, in their fight. Dropped by Darren Till, I believe, with an elbow in the first round of their five-round fight. Um, and... Uh, was it a five-round fight? Yeah, it was a five-round fight. And then he he got buzzed a little bit in that end of that third round against Jared Cannonier. So the, he got knocked out by Israel Adesanya, we know, a couple of years ago, back in 2019. So is it possible that he gets tagged? Absolutely. But he's performing masterfully over guys like, you know, largely over Darren Cannonier, Cannonier uh, excuse me, Jared Cannonier, uh, Kelvin Gastelum, Marvin Vittori. And this is before Vittori is like on the really bad streak that he's on now. He's just like not in a good place, it seems like, in many ways. Um, so I got I gotta agree with Nick here. I gotta go with Robert Whitaker. You gotta assume that he's not gonna gas out in in you know landing shots on Duplessis like some of Duplessis' previous opponents have been. Right, Duplessis has been reliant on opponents that are gonna fall apart. Brad Tavares, you know, lately at least not not the most durable. And you know, once he got tired, once he was in that storm, he's the only guy to make it to a decision with Duplessis in the UFC so far. But he ended up succumbing to him by decision after winning the first round. Darren Till looked pretty good uh, early. Pretty good in the first round. Ended up, you know, getting overwhelmed by the third round and finished. Derek Brunson looked pretty good early, and he always does, right? And he gets exhausted, and then everything goes against him against the right kind of opponent. And Duplessis, again, given his gas tank, his will, his his aggression, the fact that he has power, the fact that he refuses to relent, um, you know, he, he, he can manage wins against an op- opponent like that. I don't expect him to do that against Whitaker, but Whitaker's not a young guy, man. And as much as I believe him to be the either the best middleweight or tied for best middleweight with Adesanya, I thought that Whitaker won that Adesanya matchup by a relatively close margin, but I did think he won it. Striking was very close. I'd, I'd probably give Whitaker a slight edge in the striking uh, with with the way that the shots landed and and and, and, uh, um, and and just the way that the fight looked, but also Whitaker got takedowns. They were momentary takedowns. He didn't do damage with them. He didn't control. I get it, but if all else is extremely similar... Uh, at the very least, I think the guy should be rewarded to some extent for uh, successfully completing takedowns, even if you say the striking is more uh, is, is closer than I'm arguing that it is. Again, I'm saying it's close, but I thought Whitaker had the edge. In any case, Whitaker, uh, one of the best middleweights in the world by far over everyone except for Adesanya and, uh, and Drakus Duplessis shouldn't. Uh, shouldn't have much for him, but again, dude's dangerous, man, and and you just never know. I know Whitaker's not the type of guy to take this sort of matchup lightly. Next, my pick was in the main event: uh, Alexander Volkanovski versus Yari Rodriguez. I think you all know I'm a big fan of Volkanovski. I I just think he's swell. I think he's fantastic. He is my favorite fighter. Um, 
in my opinion, the best pound-for-pound fighter on planet Earth. The way that he strategizes for his specific opponents and the fact that he's excellent absolutely everywhere allows him to have so much flexibility in creating the game plan to beat his opponent in particular, right? Whether it's the, the way that he used to fight on the come-up in the UFC was he used to just put take down guys and pound them out. Just, just extreme grappling pressure into... Serious ground and pound. And we've seen inklings of his ground and pound since, right? But he's changed up his game plan. For Chad Mendes, he knew that taking him down was going to be very difficult. So he needed to apply pressure to make Mendes tired in trying to fight back. And he knew he probably was going to get hurt in the process. And he did get dropped for a moment. And what did he do? His Eventually, he drowned Chad Mendes and overwhelmed him and beat him, right? Very different game plan than he fought with before. Jose Aldo, he knew that he had to he had to uh, essentially get it, keep the fight at a range where Jose Aldo can't do a lot of damage. Jose Aldo doesn't throw a lot of kicks anymore, right? It's that boxing range you want to stay out of. So he either stayed in the clinch with Jose Aldo and controlled him and landed pitter-patters, or he stayed in kicking range and continually disrupted Aldo's flow with those inside leg kicks. Um... Again, very different game plan against a different opponent, and it was effective. Max Holloway, right? He knew that he had to be careful with Max Holloway's momentum. He couldn't let Max Holloway build momentum, so he got right into his face and made sure to stay cleaner than he is. I, I, th- I picked him in that fight. I won money on that fight, uh, uh, on that one because I'm a big believer in Volkanovski's skills, and Max Holloway has enough holes to exploit, and we saw what happened over the course of those three fights. The second fight obviously being very close, and the third fight being extremely dominant in Volkanovski's favor. And then... You know, he fought Mahachev, and I thought that he was a live dog against Mahachev. I edged Mahachev very slightly, but I thought that the odds were absolutely insane. And so I plus placed some money on Volkanovski by decision. And what do you know? It was extremely competitive. And I, I may be biased because he's my favorite fighter, but I thought that Volkanovski deserved that decision if you're going to value damage over control. In that one round where Volkanovski's back was taken, Volkanovski was landing shots, and Islam Makhachev was literally trying to hide his face from the shots that Volkanovski was landing, even though Islam Makhachev was the one that had back control, that had that quote-unquote dominant position, right? Is it really a dominant position when things are happening that you don't want to happen and your opponent's landing on you and you can't do a damn thing to your opponent? Um, I thought Volkanovski took that round. I, I, I thought I thought he looked fantastic. And, uh, and that alone should swing the fight in his direction. That fifth round was dominant for Volkanovski. Right, Islam Makhachev was not prepared for that he didn't have the experience going deep into fights against a live opponent he's been getting guys out of there or dominating for three rounds straight uh and so you know i I, it's a shame that they won't fight very soon because volkanovsky's 34 we all know the records of fighters in title fights at 170 pounds or below at age 35 the record is not very good man really really rather bad actually i don't have the number in front of me but it's something like three and 18 or three and 19 over the last several years um and so volkanovsky's getting there he's 34 now he's about to in september turn 35 Right, so before his next fight, he's gonna be 35 years old, um, and and I know this. Like I'm, I'm talking about it like there's a specific date, but there is something to being around this age. Your durability is not quite the same when you're relying on speed. Your speed is not quite the same at that age. Your power stays, but Volkanovski is not a very powerful guy, right? So will his style age well? The fact that he's largely doesn't take big shots is obviously going to help, no doubt about it. But you got to have questions about whether this is the time against an opponent who is extremely live, who is extremely dangerous. Jair Rodriguez is, is, I mean, he can do anything at any moment that could either finish the fight or lead to the finish of a fight. He could do damage off his back, whether it be some fancy, crazy upkicks, whether it be how aggressively he throws up submissions uh, in a way that most guys are not used to, especially for a guy with his length and his size, right? The, the, the way that he could just mix it up. And after many rounds of seemingly losing the fight, against Korean Zombie, land that insane elbow with a literal second left. He was going to lose that decision. He turned into win. Jeremy Stevens, right? There's a concern in the Jeremy Stevens fight. I know that first one ended by accidental uh, eye poke um, early, but in the rematch, he was 
rather dominating Jeremy Stevens, right? Doing whatever he wanted. His speed advantage was monstrous in that one. But in that third round, Jeremy Stevens put the pressure on. And Yair Rodriguez looked tired. Now, in his next bout against Max Holloway, it was a competitive back-and-forth war for five rounds. And his cardio didn't look bad. And he showed that he's able to push through being really exhausted, which is a great sign if you're facing Volkanovski, which means that at any point, if Volkanovski can't finish him, and Volkanovski's not a very good finisher, if he cannot finish him at any point, Ryan Rodriguez could land that monster monster kick more likely than not it's going to be a kick uh but any kind of fancy shit um that southpaw kicking game that he showed uh in his last fight against josh emmett man that is a frightening thing and i can only imagine the volkanovsky is extremely prepared i can only imagine that grappling is going to be a part of volkanovsky's strategy here because that's where we've seen Ryan rodriguez look uh rather touchable right and the fact of the matter is volkanovsky got buzzed in his last fight not only did he and i mentioned earlier that he got buzzed by chad mendez he got Buzzed by Islam Mahachev, who I know is a huge guy. He's about the dimensions, even though he's, uh, Mahachev is thicker. He's about the dimensions of Yaya Rodriguez. And he's another southpaw. Rodriguez largely is a southpaw. He absolutely switches. Um, so the good news for Volkanovski is that he's used to fighting these taller guys. The bad news is that the speed advantage he usually has is probably not going to be there. He's probably going to be the slower guy, at least in the first couple of rounds. Um, he is facing a guy that can, like, yeah, he, Jair Rodriguez doesn't have a lot of power in his hands, but he's got extreme power in every kick. He's got extreme speed. That body kick could land from southpaw to the liver, right? That head kick could land. Volkanovski is the kind of guy who's going to fight through it if at all possible. We've seen this already, right? The way that Ortega was able to catch him in the submission, uh, the, the way that he was buzzed by Mahashev, uh, you know, uh, buzzed by guys like Chad Mendez. Uh, Max Holloway had some success in that, particularly in that second fight. Um, we know that Volkanovski is willing to fight through anything and get even more aggressive uh, uh, on his opponent. Um, I got to believe Volkanovski is going to try to get top position here. I'm just concerned about every moment in which Volkanovski is not in a dominant position because Yair Rodriguez is live. He's excruciatingly dangerous. And if he can beat Volkanovski here, he's facing a 35-year-old Volkanovski who's just been presumably knocked out. We're talking about the Yair Rodriguez era beginning, whether that fight, you know, whether that lasts two fights or 10 fights, who knows, but um, this this could be a changing of the guard, and I'm worried for my guy Volkanovski, even though I also like Yair Rodriguez quite a bit, but this is a, a fantastic matchup. I mean, I know Volkanovski's a big favorite, but the odds are a little bit wide apart. Um, again, there's always a danger to giving too much credit to the guy going, coming off of a loss, and like a, like an impressive loss, right? Like there's, it does something to you mentally. Like, does he think he's too good for these 145ers? He doesn't seem to be showing that, right? He seems to be mentally strong enough and focused enough to work his butt off no matter what, knowing that Yara Rodriguez is as dangerous as he is. And he's mentioned that multiple times about how he's aware of it. So um, I'm picking Volkanovski, and, and, uh, but I see some serious risk. And honestly, it's not out of the realm of possibility for me to change this pick and turn it into a potential three-pointer, since you all know a plus 250 underdog or above uh, nets you three points with success. And Yara Rodriguez is, a, is a, you know, as much as a plus 310 underdog, depending on where you look. Uh, the next pick in our draft competition was for Nick, and he picked Robbie Lawler for two points to beat Nico Price. And I can't really blame him for this one, right? Like, I was seriously considering making making a similar pick, and I probably wouldn't have done it quite as soon just because I have some confidence in a couple of the others. But the thing that would keep me from picking Robbie Lawler is the fact that he's this is his retirement fight, and we know that guys don't do well in their retirement fights. You got one foot out the door. You're just trying to make get this one in before you move on. You're already looking ahead as to what you might be doing next. I'm sure you've got some things lined up, um, whether it be coaching or what have you, for Lawler. Whereas Nico Price, like he's honestly been looking shitty, man. His last one was, was over Alex Oliveira, who's no longer in the UFC. Lost to Phil Rowe in the third round after looking good early. Lost to Michelle Pereira, which is understandable. Vincente Luque, not a bad loss, right? But Joff Neal... 
Vincente Luque, these are Abdul Razak al-Hassan, these are the kind of guys that beat him. And so these are guys with serious power, right? Phil Rowe got him out of there. Guy has power. Michelle Pereira uh, is explosive. He's got power and he's got speed. And he's pretty tricky to land at. Vincente Luque, power and aggression. Right, Joff Neal, serious power striker from Southpaw. Abdul Razak al-Hassan, all that man has is power. He's got absolutely nothing else. So is it past... Uh, uh, Nico Price loses the fight. Absolutely not, especially the recent Nico Price version, right, that went to a draw with Donald Cerrone, man. The Donald Cerrone that was getting smoked by everybody else. The the super dangerous, super durable, super conditioned Nico Price of old is not the same, man. Guy's got, guy's got what, seven, six or seven kids or something like that. He's already 33 years old, right? How much time is he putting into training versus uh, how much time he was able to put in earlier in his career? How How is he getting to training camp without getting hurt and still getting himself conditioned enough? So I think it's entirely possible that Robert Lawler wins this fight. He's going to look good early, but at some point... Um, you know, I, I would assume if, if he's not going to get Nico Price out of there, Nico Price could take over late and maybe put on the kind of pace that Robbie Lawler can't handle. But again, Nico Price himself gets pretty damn tired. So I, I think Nick is making the right swinger on the three-pointer. It looks like on paper a pick him to me. And so having Robbie Lawler uh, as, a, as a decent-sized dog is something worth, you know, touching up on with money that you don't mind not seeing again. But the retirement thing right like that just makes a huge difference we extremely rarely see a guy going into his retirement and doing well um and uh, and i know that amanda nunez you know did so recently but it was not against a live opponent and that's a rare occasion where somebody retires uh, at the top of their game which is what nunez did my next pick was in the co-main event the brandon moreno pantozer matchup and this one is fascinating for a lot of reasons and i think the chief reason being that well there's several reasons right one thing is that both these guys used to be very similar earlier in their careers right if you if you look at it they were both just like aggressive just relentlessly aggressive um and kind of both bullies by nature right and even though like moreno lost the first two fights like that first fight he looked pretty good in the first round uh it was an exhibition on the ultimate fighter he looked pretty decent in that first round right and then the experience of pantoja the athleticism of pantoja took over and that's the biggest difference i think leading up to this fight between these two guys is the athleticism the physicality of pantoja man he's aggressive as hell he's strong he's powerful he's explosive the thing is that he doesn't necessarily shown or really have the chance to show the gas tank to go five rounds so if he's not able to get brandon moreno out of there in the first round or two how is he going to look in that third, fourth, and fifth round when Brandon Moreno is absolutely used to fighting five-round fights? He's used to going deep and, and persevering and pushing through and, and doing well, whereas Pantoja is coming off of two uh, finishes within the first two rounds, one over Brandon Rival, which is impressive, but one over, over Alex Pereira, which is not so impressive. Uh, Manel Kopp, he, he beat by debatable decision prior to that, right? Lost to Askar Askarov, lost to Davidson Figueredo, lost to Dustin Ortiz back in 2018. The same Davidson Figueredo, mind you, that... Brandon Moreno just ended up dominating and, and kind of moving on and putting a bow on that four-fight uh, series that they had. Both of these guys have had a jab since then, right? So even though the athleticism is still going to favor Pantoja, Brandon Moreno's added the jab. Pantoja's added the jab, but Brandon Moreno's developed so many elements of his game. He's got a tremendous amount of five-round experience, right? The experience factor is now flipped between these two guys. Yeah, Pantoja's had a bunch of fights, but it wasn't at the top. It wasn't with the lights on quite the way that they're going to be in this matchup. It wasn't in five-round fights, right? If you're a flyweight, even if you're a top contender, you're probably on the early prelims in the UFC, unfortunately. And so a lot of these guys don't get the chance to go five rounds before they face the best. 
and Pantoja hasn't. And so he's in a situation now where he's fighting a much more technical Brandon Moreno. Brandon Moreno is going to be popping his head back with jabs. As Pantoja aggressively moves forward, he's going to be getting his pop, uh, head pop back. But the concern with Moreno is that not only did he lose two fights to him, so where is he mentally? He seems strong mentally, right? But what's that going to do to the guy? Like, it's a very different dynamic, even from the Figueredo series. Um, and so is he going to be confident enough going into that one, knowing that this guy has uh, checkmated him twice before, once by finish? Um, but more importantly, the concern is that Brandon Moreno often fights down to his competition, right? That Kaikara France fight, it was very competitive. Argument could be made that Kaikara France won the first two rounds in that matchup. And Kaikara France is an elite, you know, flyweight. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, the fact that this is the champion and that's how that fight went. If he didn't land that liver kick, what would have happened? Um, Davidson Figueroa, he he dominated, but Davidson Figueroa, you know, he's been... He's been getting affected by those weight cuts, and he lost to Davis and Figueredo just a couple of fights ago in 20, early 2022. Um, and so, again, we have this weird dynamic where Moreno fights down to his competition. He's lost twice to this guy, whereas he mentally against the guy who's beaten him twice, who's super at the way more athletic, who also has improved his game, but not quite to the extent that Moreno has, doesn't quite have the experience uh, in five rounders that Moreno has. I got to go with Brandon Moreno here, and that was my pick. I see, I realize there's some risk here, but you got to go with the guy who's going to who's going to come in there with five-round experience against the guy who has looked tired at times, late in fights, who has wilted at times, if not necessarily getting blown out of the water, but he has wilted at times, and we haven't seen Moreno wilt. We've seen Moreno beaten, but he never loses the will to fight. And so I've got to go with the with the, with the champ. I've got to go with the guy whose confidence should be peaking outside of the idea that he just you know lost twice to the guy that he's about to face. But I've got to go with Brandon Moreno here, but I see an upset being a potential here. Um... Yasmin Yujiragui was Nick's next pick after that, which, here's the thing, it's something to consider to pick her opponent for three points, given the odds discrepancy here, all else being the same, I'm picking Yasmin Yujiragui, she's an aggressive striker, she's pretty relentless, she can get dropped and she can stand back up and go back to it, and she's facing an opponent with some similar attributes, and I think it's Denise Gomes, I believe that's how you say her name, I may be wrong, uh, now here's the thing, Gomes in her short notice UFC debut lost to Luma Lugbume, and that's not that bad, right? But she was taken down and kind of like dominated in that way by Luke Bume. Doing pretty well against her striking. And then she beat Bruna Brazil in the in the following matchup uh, by knockout in the second round. Here's the thing. Yasmin's pretty hittable, right? She's willing to just wait in there and exchange punches. Um, if you're not going to get tired of Wilt, which I'm not convinced that that uh, Go- Denise, Denise Gomez is going to necessarily get tired of Wilt, um, there's a good chance this is a back-and-forth fight, and in women's MMA, we see these upsets happen more often than not. When the odds are wide, the underdog is to be considered. So as much as he picked Yasmin Jirugui, um, and I agree with the pick all being equal, I would have very seriously considered a three-pointer. I may have not had the guts to pull to pull the trigger on that, but I would have very seriously considered a three-pointer if I had the opportunity to pick that fight because um, these are, you know, Denise, Denise is not great if you take her down, but her opponent has zero takedown attempts, and this is a striking match between two women who are pretty good at striking. And we've seen Jirugui look uh, look hittable and dropped in the past. Uh, my next pick after that was in the fight between Kamala Kirk and Esteban Rabinovics. Um, Kamala Kirk on paper like seems to have some potential going into his UFC debut, into his contender series bout. He lost to uh, Billy Quarantillo, which you know is not terribly like it's not that bad. Lost to Bruno Souza uh, after that in the LFA after that contender series tryout, won his next couple of LFA bouts, and then moved on to fight Makwan Armikani in his uh, in his UFC 
uh, debut. Also, I feel like there's a chance to come on. No, it was his UFC debut. And he beat up Makwan Amrakani after Amrakani looked decent early. Amrakani is like so past his prime. But the way that he got dominated by Damon Jackson is concerning here. And I happen to think that Esteban Rabinovich, who trains largely at American Top Team, I assume that's where he had his uh, his training camp for this one, uh, lost his last UFC fight. He, is, uh, he actually was his UFC debut after a contender series win. Um, he has serious power, man. He has decent will. Not a lot of experience with the fight going deep, but it was Lori Grzabov's offensive takedowns that did the trick, and Kamala Kirk, at least at the UFC level, has not shown the propensity for that. Um, I actually think that Rubinovic is going to hit significantly harder standing, and Rubinovic, if he wants the takedown, should it, it should be there for him, and he could do some damage with ground and pound. So I've got to pick uh, Rubinovic here, unless Kamala Kirk has been very nervous in his UFC career thus far, and suddenly he's going to have all his uh, ducks in a row for this one. Uh, he, in, in his next matchup, Nikolai picked in in probably the lowest level matchup on this card he picked G- uh, Jesus Aguilar to beat Shannon Ross and look I'm I'm not you know I'm not trying to spend a whole lot of time on this on this matchup but Ross is a decent overall he's decent overall with durability issues and Aguilar Aguilar who kind of dives for a lot of guillotine chokes and his last four his last four wins are by guillotine Right, so he, he's a fin- uh, his last four finishes, excuse me, are by Gainty Choke. So he goes for it quite a bit, but there have been situations in which he goes for it, fails to get it, and then gives up top position and and kind of gets dominated. He doesn't have the power. Uh, Aguilar doesn't have the power that it usually takes to hurt Ross. Who Ross? He's got durability issues now. He was gotten out of there by a couple of pretty high level or pr- pretty decent prospects in the UFC and Vinicius. Uh, Salvador on the Contender Series, and to Clayton Rodriguez uh, in his UFC debut, he, he got taken out of there in round one. So durability, durability issues are definitely a concern, and that's why I'm glad I didn't pick this fight. Just Jesus, Jesus Aguilar doesn't seem to have the power to necessarily shut off Shannon Ross's uh, uh, lights, unless Shannon Ross's chin is truly ruined. So I look, it could go either way. I I guess. I, I am probably going to lean Aguilar because Shannon Ross is, is not durable at all, but there's entirely a chance that Aguilar goes for a guillotine and Shannon Ross defends it and gets on top and does his thing. So, I'm, again, I'm glad that Nick got to pick this fight and that I did not have to. My next pick was in the matchup between Marcin Prochnia and Vitor Petrino. Um, look, Prochnia's made remarkable movements since his UFC debut. I mean, he, he went 0-3. All three were by, I think, Southpaw left hands if I'm not mistaken right it was it was the exact same technique that worked on him in the first round by knockout to Sam Alvey, Magomed Ankalaev and Mike Rodriguez and two of those guys are no longer in the UFC one of those guys is one of the best light heavyweights in the world and then he comes back and he beats Khalil Roundtree who's a pretty dangerous opponent he beats the really truly truly terrible Ike Valenuela loses to Philip Lenz by decision and then beats William Knight in a fight that William Knight kind of did his best Yoel Romero impression didn't throw a goddamn thing stood at the end of uh, those leg kicks that Prochnia threw and continued to take them without trying to do a damn thing about it so look this is a different matchup for him right he's facing Vitor Petrino who you know I doubted his cardio I doubted his wrestling leading up to his last matchup against Anton Turkaj and He's shown that, man, he's he's still super dangerous late. He can get offensive takedowns, which is an element of his game that I hadn't seen before. And I think, you know, Prashnia, he might do the karate thing, might stay at a distance and land those kicks uh, from range, and maybe he'll outpoint him. That's entirely possible. But I think given the 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 lack of durability that Prashnia has shown in the past, unless he's on some really good sauce that, that makes it just more durable or what have you, uh, you got to go with Vitor Petrino, who whether or not he's on the sauce, he certainly seems like it. The guy's explosive. He's athletic. He's strong. He's young as heck. He's only 25 years old and got a decent bit of experience, 6'2", at 205 pounds. Um, he seems to on paper have a lot of the makings of a, of a serious prospect but this won't be the first time we've seen the more experienced guy beat the 
like up and coming prospect who isn't quite as experienced. And so I'm picking Petrino here, but I see the risk. Um, next, Nick picked, picked Jimmy Crute to beat Alonzo Manyfield. And uh, that was his last pick. That I believe that makes seven picks for each of us. And here's the thing: these guys have fought once before. It was a it was a, a couple of years ago, and it was you know it was a really weird matchup. It ended up being a draw, right? Which is like pretty unusual in the UFC. The reason it was a draw is because Jimmy Crook basically. I mean, by the way, this was actually more recent than I realized. This was in February of this year. Jimmy Crook basically did really well early in that uh, for the majority of the first round. Got to opposition, controlled him. Alonzo Manifield got up to his feet and clocked him and hurt him badly. And since then, Alonzo Manifield spent the end of round one and round two trying to finish Jimmy Crew, who he dropped more. But Jimmy Crew's a fairly tough guy. So if, if his lights stay on, he's not going to necessarily, you know, like look for the way out. Then Alonzo Manifield trying to finish him got exhausted. And in the third round, when Jimmy Crew, who's pretty well conditioned um, and apparently has decent recovery, who went for a takedown. Alonzo Manifield grabbed the fence pretty egregiously, and the referee took a point. And so it ended up being a draw, even though Alonzo Manifield clearly won the first two rounds, lost the third round, and then lost a point for grabbing the fence, uh, because, you know, largely because he was tired. So it could go either way on paper, but I think the fact that Alonzo Manifield's hurt him as badly as he did, and the fact that he's going to go into this matchup, knowing that the fact that he dropped him multiple times earlier this year, it wasn't even that long ago, and Jimmy Crude has had durability issues in the past. He was, you know, gotten out of there by Jamal Hill in less than 50 seconds. He had durability issues against Anthony Smith with his leg break um, a couple of years ago. And, you know, he makes his return against Alonzo Manifield, and man, it's a rough night. Maybe he got his, his feet under him now. Maybe he needed that return fight. Maybe he won't be um, as uh, as rusty at this point. Maybe he'll look good, but, you know, the durability issues are concerning me. He's he's fast. He's faster in this matchup. He's he's uh, physically more aggressive, even though he's not the more physically dominant, more, phys- uh, more uh, athletic fighter in the matchup. I'm giving Menefield the slightest edge, but you know, given how this season has been going, I'm sure Nick will get the point for this one, and Kurt will Kurt will end up taking it and exploiting some uh, many of the holes that Alonzo Menefield has. Um, so, look, is it is it a good card? Yeah, man, it's a solid card. It's about as good a card as the UFC is willing to put on at this point in time. Now, we don't have like a major major star, but I, t- I kind of feel like Alexander Volkanovski's star power is rising. I think Gary Rodriguez, given his given his fighting style, is very popular. Brandon Moreno is very popular. He's a very likable guy. Robert Whitaker is a name fighting a an up-and-comer who's undefeated in the UFC, 19-2 and two overall, right as Drake as Duplessis. Dan Hooker's going up against an, uh, another, like, hopefully serious contender in the near future. Bo Nichols on the card. Robbie Lawler's retirement fight. Jack Dallin Magdalena's on the card. I wish, you know, I almost wish these guys were paired up against each other knowing that they're a weight division apart. Uh, it would have been more intriguing than if they had been fighting these guys that have no business, you know, facing them at this point. Um, and, you know, on the undercard is decent. We've got some a couple of prospects to look forward to, like, Yasmin Jurugui, who might end up challenging for a title one day, especially if she gets through this one, right? We got Vitor Petrino, Tatsara Tyra, who's a pretty serious prospect. Cameron Simon, who's a uh, who's a prospect. Um, and uh, Estevan Rabinovitz, I don't think is, uh, I think could could potentially have something. And we're going to see it in his next couple of fights to, to see if he really has prospect material written on him. But in any case, I'm excited about this card. I, I wish some of these guys were in different matchups and some of these odds were closer, not necessarily because odds makers don't know any better but because the UFC matches them up better but I I get the short notice replacements that are going to make this card a little less interesting if you think about it Bo Nickel versus Treshawn Gore is a little more intriguing than this matchup despite the fact that it's supposed to be a gimme for Bo Nickel Davidson Vergato versus Manel Coppola is supposed to be on this card which is fantastic Sean Brady Jack Della Maddalena Sean Brady is the guy that was supposed to fight Jack Della to begin with right so which is which is again just a great matchup that, that that's prospect versus prospect I'm all about it and then Cameron Simon versus Christian Rodriguez is a much more intriguing fight than Cameron Simon versus Terrence Mitchell, right? Christian Rodriguez uh, is a pretty formidable 
uh, opponent, a really tough guy, and, and he's he's shown some serious skills following his short notice UFC debut, and and including his win over Raul Rosas Jr., who he basically just dominated for most of that fight. So that would have been more intriguing, but I will absolutely take UFC 290 Volkanovski versus Rodriguez coming up this weekend. I'm quickly just going to read through Nick's and my picks for those of you that are following our draft competition. You all know that Nick is something like six points ahead of me, and I don't like that one bit, but we're going to fight through it and gain those points. My first pick was JDM, Jack Della Maddalena. His first pick was Bo Nickel. Second, I chose Tyra. Uh, his second pick was Cameron Simon. Third, I, I, I chose Jalen Turner. His third pick was Robert Whitaker. Fourth, I chose the GOAT, the best pound found fighter on planet Earth right now, Alexander Volkanovsky, knowing that there's risk there. And he took Robbie Lawler as his fourth pick for two points. Uh, fifth, I took Brandon Moreno uh, to to you know beat those old demons. He Picked Yasmin Jirugui as his fifth pick. Fifth pick. My sixth pick was uh, Rob Ribovic. Uh, his sixth pick was Aguilar. Uh, my seventh pick was Petrino, and his last pick was Jimmy Crute. Uh, that will do it for this one, man. Uh, I, I I would imagine that what we have on tap coming up is a is a really weak UFC card. I'm quickly going to take a look at it before I sign off. Here we got Holly Holm versus Mara Buenasova, which I mean, if Holm has her way, is going to be dreadful to watch. And there's a chance, despite the fact that it's dreadful to watch, that she's going to get a title shot for that vacant 135-pound title if she does win this fight over Mara Buenasova. Um, and then Jernel Park is on the card. Walt Harris is coming back. Norma Dumont versus Chelsea Chandler is on this matchup. Uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. Pretty bad card. There's there's very little redeeming that you can say uh, about the situation. Uh, I will say, though, Nazim Sadikov is facing off with Terrence McKinney, which is an intriguing matchup. Outside of that, uh, there's a 16-0 guy from, it looks like, is it Tajikistan? Where's this man from? 16-0 kid uh, from Kazakhstan named Azat Maksum, who is debuting uh, in this one against Tyson Nam, which could be intriguing. I haven't done the uh, research on Azum yet. Um, Evan Elders coming back on this card, which is, you know, interesting enough, I suppose. Yeah, this is just rather shitty, shitty card. And we have very little to look forward to after this one. So really do enjoy UFC 290, man. It's not going to get a whole lot better in the near future. Thanks for listening, everyone.